0: And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved.
1: Pray with me. Father, we're very grateful to be gathering today as a church family. God, I pray that the statement in Acts 2 of that early church would also be true of the Grove Church, that we would be a people devoted to the teachings of your word, to fellowship and breaking bread together and prayer. God, would you let that sink into our minds and hearts? Let us be devoted to those things and see how you move and how your spirit moves in and among us. God, I pray for Chris as he's getting ready to uh, preach the word and preach the message that you've put on his heart and that he's been working. I know he's been working hard on all week. I ask that you would um, give him your words, that these would be, this would be your sermon to your people today, and uh, God, help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand uh, all these things that we hear today. We love you, in your name we pray. Good morning, everyone. My throat has been
0: pretty scratchy this morning, so I'm going to keep my water here. I'm going to try not to cough into the microphone, so sound guys, sorry for that in advance. But good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. My name is Chris. For those of you who may not know me, um, I'm the associate pastor here at the Grove as of this last April And so I'm excited to be able to come and stand before you and bring the Word of God this morning. This is something that I'm still learning how to do, and I'm excited for to be able to kind of flex these muscles and build and grow and learn. And so I'm grateful uh, for the opportunity and for Lance to share uh, the pulpit. And so (laughs) there's always one guy. Thank you, Wiley. Could you come sit up here, actually, in the front real quick? (laughs) No, so, so today we're talking about the breaking of the bread, right? If this is, if this is your first time to the Grove, or you maybe haven't been here uh, through our whole series on daily devotions, let me catch you up real quick with a quick recap of kind of what we've already been through and where we're heading for today. And so over the last, I think about four weeks, we've started in the book of Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47, and we're looking at what the early church was devoted to, in the book of Acts. And so, as the Renstrom just read, we saw that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And so, we started off with the fellowship, and then we followed that up with a sermon on um, formation within community. And then we talked about the apostles' teaching, and what it was that they were devoted to within that teaching. And then last week, Lance brought to us a sermon that was based around the reliability of the Bible and how and why we can trust the written Word of God that we have both historically and and all of that. So that was a great sermon. If you've missed some of those, you can obviously go back on our YouTube channel and you can catch up on uh, those sermons. But for today, we're going to be focusing on the devotion of breaking of the bread. And I have to be honest, as I was starting to prepare this sermon my mind initially was like, okay, it's communion, so what all do I, I mean, I don't know what to say. Like, we talk about communion every week, right? This is something that we do intentionally. We'll talk about in a minute. Um, But initially, my response was like, okay, this is just, this is something normal. What do I say? Um, And the Lord uh, was gracious to me this week and humbled me and helped me to realize that there is a lot of depth and gravity to what we do and why we do what we do. And so I hope this morning to be able to um, cover that devotion and maybe help you walk away and understand um, at a deeper level what that means and what it looks like. And so over and over, week by week, we've been talking about this word devotion, right? We've been talking about this word devotion over and over. And um, usually when we hear that word, there's all kinds of different things that pop in our mind. And for me, Growing up, I know that I don't have the physique of an athlete, maybe an offensive lineman, but I used to be an athletic person um, and played a lot of sports growing up. And so, when I hear the word devotion, my mind typically immediately goes to the devotion of like a professional athlete. And um, I swam a lot in high school, and so I love swimming. And I keep up with the Summer Olympics when they come, and I'm like all in to all the swimming events. Uh, but Michael Phelps, most of you know, I actually mentioned this to my daughter who's 15. She was like, who's Michael Phelps? And I was like, oh, I have failed you as a father. Um, who is Jesus? Can you tell me that? Okay, we're good. Um, but we, if we look at Michael Phelps, right, most of us know him. He's this famous Olympic uh, swimmer, and I want to give you just a little picture and an illustration of what devotion looked like for him. And so at the height of his career, um, he was, is one of the most decorated Olympic swimmers of all time. He holds 28 medals total of the Olympics, and 23 of those medals are gold medals. And so um, let me tell you a little bit about what his devotion looked like to his sport. At the height of his career, he would be swimming roughly about eight miles a day. He would swim six to seven days a week. He would spend five to six hours a day in the pool. This doesn't include his time that he would spend in the gym with strength and conditioning workouts and things like that. But get this, he would consume eight to 10,000 calories a day in the midst of this kind of a training regime, and he would consume that amount of calories simply to burn them off in his training exercises. And so as I was looking, going, well, what does eight to 10,000 calories look like in a day? This is what he would eat. In the morning, he would have three fried egg sandwiches with tomatoes, fried onions, mayo, lettuce, and cheese, followed up by one five-egg omelet, one bowl of grits, three slices of French toast, don't forget to dust it with powdered sugar, Um, three chocolate chip pancakes, and two cups of coffee. And if that wasn't enough, it sounds delicious. but I don't know that I want to run and swim and work out as much as it would take to burn that off. So for lunch, he would eat literally a pound of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayo on white bread specifically, and then he would drink a thousand calories and energy drinks. And then to follow it up, yeah, I can hear you moaning. I felt the same way when I was reading this. And so to follow it up at dinner, he would have another pound of pasta, an eight inch pizza, and several more energy drinks. This was all being consumed. He was so devoted to his sport that he would consume this like massive amount of food and calories just to go so that he could work and burn them off and be able to keep up with the, his body and his strength and to be able to swim at the level with which he did. So he would consume these calories just to burn them off. And so I want you guys to think about, as you hear that, the level of devotion that he maintained, not just for an Olympic season, but this was for years, Right? well before the Olympics, he was devoted in preparing himself for what the Olympics and all his um, races would bring. And now get this, most of the races that he would swim would literally last three minutes, four minutes, six minutes, and he was winning those, so he was the faster one in those groups, right? And so all of this devotion and this time spent training and feasting and devoting himself to working out and to eating and consuming what he needed to fuel his body— was all for a three to six minute race. And I think if we were to really sit down on that and look, um, it's kind of lost on us. It's maybe hard to fathom because most of us are not devoted to anything um, like that. And so in his quest for gold, he was devoted. Um, He was devoted to swimming. He was devoted to breaking bread. But the picture that we see in that illustration of breaking bread is different than what we're talking about here this morning Michael Phelps was no less devoted than we ought to be, and, so that, and that's for sure. And so today, my hope is that what we will leave here um, truly and simply more deeply devoted to the breaking of bread. And so let's begin with what is the breaking of bread, simply. The breaking of bread and even the prayers that we're going to be talking about in just a couple of weeks, these are the result of being devoted to the things that we've already talked about, specifically the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And so the breaking of bread and that devotion is a response to being devoted to those two things. And so it's common for us to think of breaking of bread just simply as worship through what we just did here a minute ago through communion and the elements. But I hope what we see today is that it is broader than just the table. Um, This really um, is about breaking bread and table fellowship as a whole within community, and that includes communion. So meals in the first century church, we have to understand that they had innately in them an idea of sharing first with God and then with others. We saw in the verses that they did this on a daily basis, um, and they went from temple to home, and we'll get more into that here in a little bit. But there are scenes all over the Gospels where meals and table fellowship were shared amongst each other. In fact, we even see Jesus often used meals in the Bible as a means of teaching and fellowship. And I think probably the most notable one for us is what we see in the book of Luke in chapter 22, where Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper and breaking bread with his disciples. Now, we do this every week here at the Grove. And some of you guys have come and asked Lance or asked myself, like, what's the deal with that? Why do we do this every week? And I think the simple answer um, to why we devote ourselves to this is because we see this as an act of worship, and we want to devote ourselves to breaking of the bread, specifically through communion. And when we do that, what we're doing is we're feasting on Jesus, who tells us in John 6 that he is the bread of life. And so I want to look a little bit deeper at our first point today, that the devotion to the breaking of bread through communion in a corporate gathering. So worship through communion in the corporate gathering, it really is a vital part of our spiritual maturity. And it's the, re- the reason why it's a vital part of our spiritual maturity is that when we devote ourselves to breaking bread— we are regularly practicing proclaiming the Lord's death for sinners, right? Lance just led us, led us through this. But in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 26, and it may come up on the screen behind me, it says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so, really simply, what we're doing when we break bread together through communion is we're preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another, and when we take communion together in our gather- gathering, we're remembering and recognizing that these elements that we're consuming have a very particular and a very specific symbolic meaning in the Christian faith. And so specifically, what does the bread represent? And this is where I struggled this week. Where was like, man, we talk about this all the time. But I think truly when we're devoted to something, it doesn't become just normal. Like we have to keep digging in and we have to keep reminding ourselves and proclaiming the gospel to ourselves. And so simply what the bread is, it's a symbol for us to remember that God actually became man, right? That he became man and not only did he become man, but he came to earth and suffered. He died. He was obedient to the will of his father even to the point of death on a cross. And we hear that a lot, and I think the tendency for us is to just maybe check out and go, yep, heard that, got it. But I really want us to dig in today and really want us to sit and think about what that truly means. We're consuming a representation of the actual broken body of Christ for you. That when he didn't want to, he pursued you all the way unto death at the cross. And he asked the Lord to take the cup from him in the garden, right? He prayed, God, if, this is your, if, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. But his intention was set on coming and being the propitiation for our sins. This is what we're eating when we take communion together. And when we drink the wine, what are we remembering? We're remembering that it's a symbol that all of the Old Testament sacrifices that Jesus actually came to fulfill demanded blood. And so when God became man... He came and died on the cross, but he also shed his blood for the sacrifice of many. And this picture of communion, the body and the blood broken and shed for us, for our sin, all has its roots in Exodus and the Passover, right? Right? When the Lord sent the plague, the death of the firstborn on Egypt, and all of the children of Israel had to sacrifice a spotless lamb and take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorposts of their home so that the Lord, the angel, or that the angel of death, would pass over. Their homes and, and spare them, right? And so now we see in the New Testament and in the Gospels that, that Jesus is taking this meal and He's instituting it here with His disciples, and He's painting a picture for them that His blood is now not only spread over the doorpost of their life, but over the doorpost of our hearts. Right? And this is an atoning sacrifice, the scripture would tell us for all who believe. And if we look in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, it says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way. So not the Old Testament way, but this new way that Jesus came to institute. So by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us then draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so, simply to be devoted to the breaking of bread means that we are remembering that God's sovereign plan was perfectly executed when Jesus was executed for sinners. So, I was thinking of a question as, as I was preparing for this, and, and this question kept kind of resonating in my mind as I was struggling on my own to not let this just become some normal habit. But my question is, are we in danger of making communion just a holy habit? It's just something we come, it's, it's part of the service, it's just what we do. We come, we take the bread and the juice, we really don't take it all that seriously. Maybe we sit for the sermon, we sing a song, and then we're out and we're about our week. So is it lost on us? Has this just become a habit for us, or are we coming to the table truly in desperate need for the bread of life that Jesus calls Himself in John six? So remember in John six, right after the feeding of the five thousand, like J- Jesus takes five loaves of bread and two fish, and he it gets distributed among. There it said there was five thousand men, so there was more than that with women and children. And he, he didn't just give them exactly what they needed. At the end of that passage, it also says that the disciples went around and collected 12 full baskets of bread. So Jesus supplied more in abundance than what they needed. And the disciples even walked away with bread for themselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so in this miracle, Jesus is doing something just super important. He's pointing them to not the fact that they have a physical hunger that he's able to satisfy, but that they have a deeper spiritual need, not for the manna that their fathers in the Old Testament consumed, or the bread that they just ate their fill of in this miracle of feeding the 5,000, right? But Jesus is calling them and pointing them to look at him as the true bread, as the bread of life. And when he told them, at the end of John 6, he gets really crazy and he says, well, if you're going to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says in the scriptures that some of his disciples were like, this is a hard saying, we're out. And they left, right? Jesus got a little kooky, you got to eat my blood, eat eat my body, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But what he was symbolizing or what he was trying to point them to is that they had a much deeper need than their physical appetite. They would had a spiritual need that only God could fill. And so I pray that our posture when we come to the table would be not one of just celebrating and remembering, but would also be one of finding our true and lasting sustenance in Him. So now that we have hopefully a, a little bit more of a robust picture of the beauty behind the elements of bread and wine, and hopefully we see the deep need for us to find our satisfaction in the bread of life, It is this understanding that fuels our worship and drives us to live out this devotion in community as well. So now I want to switch gears and I want to go to our second point and look at the devotion of the breaking of bread in community that we see within Acts 2, specifically verses 46 and 47. So if you have your Bibles, let's read that together again. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes... Look at what they did. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see that the church lived out this shared life, not just in the temple, but also in home. And so it was this everyday shared life um, that they lived out in their community. And they were involved in one another's life, and so while the church, our, our goal and our command is to go and love others and to share the gospel with them, the mission of a healthy church is also to meet together regularly as a family. It's why we prioritize a Sunday gathering. It's why we prioritize devoting ourselves to communion every week. It's why we prioritize being a church of neighborhood groups and not a church with neighborhood groups. There's a distinction there. The neighborhood groups and doing life together is, it should be who we are. It's an overflow of our worship. It's not just something we tack on to our schedule to just another holy habit, right? And so the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Pay attention to this, not neglecting to gather together as some were in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so to be devoted to gathering day by day, devoted to breaking bread day by day in the temple and a home, and to watch out for one another means that we're meeting one another's needs. We're being an encouragement to one another. Maybe we're exhorting one another. It also means that when we eat and when we drink together, that these are acts of worship, church. So the implication here for people who are redeemed by Jesus and devoted to this kind of or this kind of fellowship, this kind of committed partnership in the gospel is that they live lives that are others-focused and filled with joy. I think some of our best um, gospel conversations that we've had personally in my family with our neighbors over the last nine years, specifically we've been at the Grove, has started with a, a question like this. You guys have a lot of people over at your house. Why is that? And in the early days of the Grove, like, we didn't have, we hadn't adopted our kids yet at that point. And so we were uh, dual income, dinks, dual income, no kids, living life to the full, <laughs> Lots, lots more money than we have now, um, but we, we were able to open our home, and so we had a lot of missional core meetings in our home as the church was getting started, where we were digging into the scripture, and we were talking about what it looked like for us to be devoted as a church to the gospel, what it looked like uh, for us to be a people that lived on mission, what our mission, vision, and values were truly going to be. All of that was happening, not just in our home, but in others, but consistently enough that our neighbors took notice. Not just that, with, with neighborhood group at that point in time. Um, we had a, a smaller group, and, and we did life together really well in that group. Um, every time there was something going on in, in one or another, another's family, we were all in it for each other. We were there, we were hanging out, even if it was just chilling in the garage and, and talking and, and reading the scriptures together or dining and eating together, whatever it was, we just did things as a family. And when we did that on a consistent basis, the neighbors around us took notice. Why do you always have people at your house? It was a great and easy opportunity for us to go, this is our church family. We do life together. We love one another. Um, doesn't mean we always agree, but we love one another. And so I think we were able to share with them that, that we were helping start a church and that we were that we were actually adopting kids at some point. And they, uh, the the Grove came around us and threw a big, huge garage sale for us because we needed to raise six thousand dollars for our first installment of adopting an infant, adopting an infant, which was like forty grand total. We needed six grand. The Grove Church came together around us, threw the biggest garage sale you've ever seen in your life, and we walked away making six thousand and seven dollars. Um, and so it's beautiful stuff like that. Yeah, you can clap for that. Praise God. And so, But it's beautiful stuff like that that our neighbors, Tyler and Katie, right next door go, man, what is this? Who are these people? Man, they love you. Yeah, they do. But it's because this church was committed to and is committed to doing life and living life together and communing with one another. In Acts Luke, the writer of Acts, describes the winning of converts to Christ as a daily result of the life of the church. We saw that in verses 46 and 47, right? And 47 in particular said that they had favor with all people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so church growth was explosive when people were simply just excited about the things of Christ. Pay attention to the fact that they didn't need special programs. Um... They didn't need the church to manage mission for them. Um, They didn't need to be pushed out by their local congregation to go and live. They just did it because they loved one another, and and the thing that they had in common was Christ. So there's a quote that we've said here in this church before from John Piper, and I want to expand on the quote that you've heard um, because it's a little bit more full, but when he talks about mission and the need for mission in the church. He says this, worship is the goal and the fuel of mission. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Mission is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or a tribal or a national or an ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go That's why we go into our neighborhoods and our networks and our nation's church. Because we have tasted, hopefully, we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus. And so we want all the families of earth included. And then he quotes Psalm 22, 27. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And he says, seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of mission. So are we a people that are so devoted to feasting on the bread of life and to communing with God first that it affects our horizontal relationships and the way that we live this out day to day with one another and with the people that God has put around us? And then I thought of this question this week, and it really messed me up, um, challenged me. Um, and so I want to ask you too, but have you ever thought about the fact that maybe the people around us don't seem interested in Jesus because of how they encounter you and I? Uh, that's hard. If we were to really look at our life in a self-assess and go, man, when people see me, do they experience the love of Christ when they encounter me? I think if we were truly excited about the things of Christ and about living life with one another in the way Uh, in this way that we see in Acts, that the witness to those around us would really just take care of itself. Because a spirit-filled, excited bunch of believers in an active church produces this result that we see in the first century church. So what attracted these outsiders? I think Jesus tells his disciple in John 13, 34, and 35 that "And a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So how are they going to know? They're going to be watching, and they're going to see how we care for one another. They're going to see how we love one another. I was griping earlier this week to Lance. Um, I don't, most, some of you know, I, I've recently gone back to school, and I'm um, trying to finish my degree in biblical studies, and um, I'm, they're making me take a Western civilization class over again, and I was like, oh, this is so boring. And Lance was like, "It's all over the Bible, man." I was like, "I know, but I don't want to learn about Socrates. I'm tired of it. Don't no, I, I? Just like, let's just read the Bible. I'm here for a biblical studies degree." Um, and ironically enough, um, I'm reading through one of my books this week for one of my, my assignments, and I read this. Um, A few years after Acts was written, a man named Aristides, who was a statesman and a general from Athens, um, commented on the reason for the spread of Christianity that he was seeing in Rome based on what he actually witnessed himself. And so he wrote this apology, and, and then he sent it to the emperor at the time, who was Emperor Hadrian, and this was in about AD 125. And he says this, as he witnesses the church in Rome, this is what he sees. If one or other of them have a bondman and bondwomen or children, so servants, slaves, through love towards them, they persuade them to to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness." Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another, and for widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes, and they rejoice over him as a very brother, for they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the Spirit and in God." And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if possible, to redeem him, they set him free. Pay attention to this part. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, And if they have no spare food, look at what they do. They fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. What devotion. I don't know about you, but that's like if I see somebody hungry and need, usually on the side of the road or something, there's times where I am moved to generosity, and there's times where I'm like, okay, well, what'd you do to get here? I don't know that that's the heart of Jesus, y'all. And so how interesting that a Roman official would see the church in first century Rome and, and, and see this depiction of what we see that they were devoted to in Acts. And so simply what the early church, uh, when the early church followed Jesus by breaking of the bread in the temple and their home, that this wasn't an exclusive activity, it was inclusive. They invited and included others at their table just as Jesusly willingly and intentionally sat with the outsiders that we see in Scripture, like the leper and the paralytic and the tax collector. And so we are, as the church, to intentionally set a table to that welcomes, that welcomes all. There's no reason for us to presume that the breaking of bread that we see in Acts 2 or even in Acts 20 only included the disciples, because remember, these meals in the first century church, they were communal in this day. And so it was common for them to gather together, everybody to gather together, just as Jesus has set the table etiquette for his kingdom. The table is not simply communal that Jesus said, but it's missional. So uh, we will get into more of the missional aspect of life as we go on in this sermon series later on. And so I'm gonna save some of that uh, for a later time. But as I close with you today, what I want you to see is, is what it really looks like to be a Christian. I think this is what it means. It means to demonstrate our love for Jesus, not wherever we have energy or availability or when we feel like it, but to persevere, to hold fast, to devote ourselves to these things beyond what we have energy for, beyond what our availability might be or how we might feel. We can be challenged to do this. Why? Because we love Jesus more than anything. And if we love Jesus more than anything, then that means that we remember the energy and the perseverance and the motivation that he had for sinners. He moved beyond not feeling like it for us, for you and for me. And so I pray that we would be a church who devotes ourselves to this act of worship through the breaking of the bread. So before we pray, um, my wife recently was gifted a small devotional book by an author and speaker. Her name is Jackie Hill Perry. And um, there's a fan. Um, So Jackie Hill Perry, she does a lot of poetry and she speaks and she travels. Um, I like the way she writes. It's very poetic. I I like poetry. Um, And so she says this. And so let me just read this over you before we close today and before we pray. She says this about the breaking of the bread, and she says this about the things that get in the way of our devotion. She says, in the same way that our bodies need a constant diet of food, our souls need God like this always. Upon waking, what we're truly hungry for is heaven, and we pick up our phone and we fill it with scrolling through social media or checking our bank account or looking at what likes and follows we might have. And as the day moves forward and the belly is empty, we fill it again with something else. You can fill that box with whatever whatever you want. And as the day moves forward, the belly is empty and we fill it again. And when a person gives us a measure of love, a like, or a look, before bed, the soul, if visible, would be skeletal and barely able to stand on its own or smile with all its teeth. The body who holds this almost dead thing feels alive because it depends on every other bread except the one that the Father sent. But the Lord's table has been set. So sit. Revive yourself in his life. Fill yourself in his love. Scrape the plate and wipe it clean. We need the bread of heaven because truly no other food will do. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, um, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. Um, God, not just your word that we read in the scriptures, but you yourself are the word. God, you truly are the bread of life. You are the one and only thing that we will ever find true and lasting sustenance in. And so, God, as we sit here today, and maybe we're challenged, um, maybe we're checked out. I pray that we wouldn't be. I pray that we would dial in, that we would focus in on the reality of what we celebrate through communion. God, that we would be a church, yes, devoted to taking of the elements and remembering and ingesting the beauty of your sacrifice for us but that we would also let that worship of you fuel us outward and into our neighborhoods and into the networks and into the nations that you've placed us in. God, you have called us to love one another and you've called us to go. And we can't do that without you. And so you knew that. And so you sent us your spirit to dwell in us when we believe. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful that you don't leave us alone. We're gr- call us to hard things and then check out and just let us wander aimlessly on our own. You're a God who is intimately acquainted with the suffering of your people. You're a God who is intimately acquainted with um, the difficulty that you've called us into. You know the cultural moment that we live in, and yet it's nothing new. And so, God, as you prepare our hearts and our minds through your word, and as you continue to um, sustain us as the bread of life, Lord God, we pray that um, that this just wouldn't be a holy habit. We pray that we would take, taste, and see that you're good. God, we love you, and we're grateful, and we pray. Amen.